Book One, Chapter Thirteen of the Fatal Three by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Thirteen. Shall she be less than another? It was all in good faith that Clement Cancellor had gone to Riverdale. He had not gone there for the flesh pots of Egypt. He was a man of severely ascetic habits who ate and drank as temperately as a disciple of that old faith of the East, which is gaining a curious influence upon our new life of the West. For him the gratification of the senses, soft raiment artistic furniture, thoroughbred horses and luxurious carriages, palm-houses and orchid-houses offered no temptation. He stayed in Mrs. Hillersdon's house because he was her friend, her friend upon the broadest and soundest basis on which friendship could be built. He knew all that was to be known about her. He knew her frailties of the past, her virtues in the present, her exalted hope in the future. From her own lips he had heard the story of Louise Lorraine's life. She had extenuated nothing. She had not withheld from him either the foulness of her sins or their number. Nay, it may be that she had in some wise exaggerated the blackness of those devils whom he, Clement Cancellor, had cast out from her, enhancing by just so much the magnitude of the miracle he had wrought. She had held back nothing but over every revelation she had contrived to spread that gloss which a clever woman knows how to give to the tale of her own wrong-doing. In every incident of that evil career she had contrived to show herself more sinned against than sinning. The fragile victim of overmastering wickedness in others, the martyr of man's treachery and man's passion, the sport of fate and circumstance. Had Mr. Cancellor known the world he lived in half as well as he knew the world beyond, he would hardly have believed so readily in the lady who had been Louise Lorraine but he was too single-minded to doubt a repentant sinner whose conversion from the ways of evil had been made manifest by so many good works and such unflagging zeal in the exercises of the anglican church parchment street grosvenor square is one of the fashionable streets of london and st elizabeth's parchment street had gradually developed in clement cancellor's incumbency into one of the most popular tabernacles at the west end he whose life desire had been to carry the lamp of the faith into dark places to be the friend and teacher of the friendless and the untaught, found himself almost in spite of himself a fashionable preacher, and the delight of the cultured, the wealthy, and the aristocratic. In his parish of St. Elizabeth's there was plenty of work for him to do, plenty of that work which he had chosen as the mission that had been given to him to fulfill. Behind those patrician streets where only the best appointed carriages drew up, where only the best-dressed footmen ever pulled the bells or rattled long peals on high-art knockers, there were some of the worst slums in London, and it was in those slums that half Mr. Cancellor's life was spent. In narrow alleys between Oxford and Wigmore streets, and in the intricate purlieus of Mary Lebone Lane, the Anglican priest had ample scope for his labor, a vineyard waiting for the husbandman. And in the labyrinth hidden in the heart of West End London, Mr. Cancellor's chief coadjutor for the last twenty years had been Louise Hillersdon. Thoroughness was the supreme quality of Mrs. Hillerden's mind. Nothing stopped her. It was this temper which had given her distinction in the days when princes were her cup-bearers and diamonds her daily tribute. There had been other women as beautiful, other women as fascinating, but there was not one who with beauty and fascination combined the audacity and resolution of Louise Lorraine. When Louise Lorraine took possession of a man's wits and a man's fortune, that man was doomed. He was as completely gone as the lemon in the iron squeezer. A twist of the machine, and there is nothing left but broken rind and crushed pulp. 
a season of infatuation and there was nothing left of mrs lorenz's admirer but shattered health and an overdrawn banking account estates houses friends position good name all dropped away from the man whom louise lorraine brayed in her mortar she spoke of him next season with half contemptuous pity did i know sir theodore barrymore yes he used to come to my parties sometimes a nice fellow enough but such a terrible fool when louise lorraine married tom hillersdon and took it into her head to break away altogether from her past career and to pose before the world as a beautiful magdalen she was clever enough to know that to achieve any place in society she must have a very powerful influence to help her she was clever enough to discover that the one influence which a woman in her position could count upon was the influence of the church she was beautiful enough and refined enough to win friends among the clergy by the charm of her personality she was rich enough to secure such friends and bind them to herself by the splendor of her gifts by her substantial aid in those good works which are to the priest as the very breath of his life one man she could win by an organ another lived only to complete a steeple the third had been yearning for a decade for that golden hour when the cracked tintinabulation which now summoned his flock should be exchanged for a fine peal of bells such men as these were only too easily won and the drawing-rooms of mr hillerdon's house in park lane were rarely without the grace of some clerical figure in long frock-coat and roman collar clement canceller was of a sterner stuff and not to be bought by bell or riordas rude screen or pulpit him louise hillersdon won by larger measures to him she offered all that was spiritual in her nature and this woman of strange memories was not without spiritual aspirations and real striving after godliness clement canceller was no pious simpleton to be won by sentimental cant and crocodile tears he knew truth from falsehood but never in his life been duped by the jingle of false coin he knew that mrs hillersdon's repentance had the true ring albeit she was in some things still of the earth earthy she had worked for him and with him in that wilderness of london as not one other woman in his congregation had ever worked to the lost of her own sex she had been as a redeeming angel wretched women had blessed her with their expiring breath had died full of hopes that might never have been awakened had not louise lorraine sat beside their beds few other women had ever so influenced the airing of her sex she who had waded deep in the slough of sin knew how to talk to sinners mr canceller never forgot her as he had seen her by the bed of death and in the haunts of iniquity she could never be to him as the herd of women to the mind of the preacher she had a higher value than one in twenty of those women of his flock whose unstained lives had never needed the cleansing of self-sacrifice and difficult works thus it was that the vicar of st elizabeth's had never shrunk from acknowledging mrs hillersdon as his personal friend had never feared to sit at her board or to be seen with her in public and in the work of louise lorraine's rehabilitation clement canceller had been a tower of strength and now this latest mark of friendship this visit to her country home and this appearance in the noble old abbey church at her solicitation filled her cup of pride those starched county people who had shunned her hospitalities were to see that one of the most distinguished preachers in the high church party had given her his friendship and his esteem it had been something for her to have the prince at riverdale it was still more to her to have clement canceller pamela was in a flutter of excitement all saturday morning in the expectation of castellani's reappearance in the afternoon she had heard mr canceller preach and was delighted at the idea of seeing him in the pleasant intimacy of afternoon tea 
had there been no such person as castellani her spirits would have been on tiptoe at the idea of conversing with the fashionable preacher of telling him in a reverent undertone of all those deep emotions his eloquence had inspired in her but the author of nepenthe possessed just that combination of qualities which commands the admiration of such a girl as pamela that exquisite touch on the piano that perfect tenor voice that exotic elegance of dress and figure all had made their mark upon the sensitive plate of a girl's ardent fancy if i had pictured to myself the man who wrote nepenthe i should have imagined just such a face just such a style thought pamela quite forgetting that when first she had read the book she had made a very vivid picture of the author altogether the opposite of cesar castellani a dark man lean as a whipping-post grave as philosophy itself with sombre black eyes and ebony hair and a complexion of antique marble and now she was ready to accept the italian sleek supple essentially modern in every grace and attribute in place of that sage of antique mould she went dancing about with the dogs all the morning inciting the grave cassandra to unwanted exertions running in and out of the drawing-room making an atmosphere of gaiety in the grave old house mildred's heart ached as she watched that flying figure in the white gown youth health joyousness personified oh if my darling were but here life might be full of happiness again she thought i should cease to weary myself with wondering about that hidden past do what she would her thoughts still dwelt upon the image of that wife who had possessed george greswold's heart before her she knew that he must have loved that other woman whom he had sworn before god's altar to cherish he was not the kind of man to marry for any motive but a disinterested love that he had loved passionately and that he had been wronged deeply was mildred's reading of the mystery there had been a look of agony in his countenance when he spoke of the past that told of a sorrow too deep for words he has never loved me as he once loved her thought mildred who out of the wealth of her own love had developed the capacity for that self-torture called jealousy it seemed to her that her husband had taken pains to avoid the old opportunities of confidential talk since that revelation of last sunday he had been more than usually engaged by the business details of his estate and she fancied that he made the most of all those duties which he used once to perform with the utmost despatch grudging every hour that was spent away from the home circle he now complained of the new steward's ignorance which threw so much extra work upon himself after jogging on for years in the same groove with a man who knew every root of my land and the idiosyncrasies of every tenant i find it hard work teaching a new man he told his wife this sounded reasonable enough yet she could but think that since sunday he had studiously avoided being alone with her if he asked her to drive or walk with him he secured pamela's company before the excursion was planned we must show you the country he said to his niece mildred told him of the threatened incursion from riverdale as they sat at luncheon with pamela i hope you don't mind my receiving mrs hillersdon she said no my dear mildred i think it would take a much worse woman than mrs hillersdon to do you any harm or pamela either whatever her early history may have been she has made tom hillersdon an excellent wife and she has been a very good friend to the poor i should not have cared for you to cultivate mrs hillersdon or the society she brings round her at riverdale sir henry says they have people from the music halls interjected pamela in an awe-stricken voice but if mrs hillersdon likes to come here with her clerical star don't call him a star george he is highly gifted and people have chosen to make him the fashion but he is the most single-hearted and simple-minded man i ever met 
no popularity could spoil him i feel that if he holds out the hand of friendship to mrs hillerston she must be a good woman let her come mildred only don't let her coming open the door to intimacy i would not have my wife the friend of any woman with a history and yet there are histories in most lives george and there is sometimes a mystery she could not refrain from this little touch of bitterness yet she was sorry the instant she had spoken deeply penitent when she saw the look of pain in the thoughtful face opposite her why should she wilfully wound him purposely needlessly she who so fondly loved him whose keenest pain was to think that he had loved any woman upon earth before he loved her will you be at home to help me receive my old friend george she said as they rose from the table yes i will be at home to welcome cancellor and to protect you from his protege's influence if i can they were all three in the drawing-room when the riverdale party arrived mildred and mrs hillersden met in some wise as old acquaintances having been thrown together on numerous occasions at hunt balls charity bazaars and other public assemblies pamela was the only stranger although the scandalous romance of louise lorraine's career was called ancient history she was still a beautiful woman the delicate features the pure tones of the alabaster skin and the large irish-gray eyes had been kindly dealt with by time on the verge of fifty mrs hillersden might have owned only to forty had she cared so far to palter with truth her charm was however now more in a fascinating personality than in the remains of a once dazzling loveliness there was mind in the keen bright face with its sharply cut lines and those traces of intellectual wear which give a new grace instead of the old one of youthful softness and faultless colouring the bloom was gone from the peach the brilliancy of youth had faded from those speaking eyes but there was all the old sweetness of expression which had made louise lorraine smile irresistible as the song of the lurlie in the days that were gone her dress was perfect as it had always been from the day when she threw away her last cotton stocking darned by her own fair hands and took to dressing like a leader of the great world and with perhaps even less concern for cost she dressed in perfect harmony with her age and position her gown was of softest black silk draped with some semi-diaphanous fabric and clouded with chantilly lace her bonnet was of the same lace and gauze and her tapering hand and slender wrist were fitted to perfection in a long black glove which met a cloud of lace just below the elbow at a period when almost every woman who wore black glittered with bees and bugles from head to foot mrs hillersden's costume was unembellished by a single ornament the parisian milliner had known how to obey her orders to the letter when she stipulated surtout point de jet and the effect was at once distinguished and refined clement cancellor greeted his old pupil with warm friendliness and meekly accepted her reproaches for all those invitations which he had refused in the past ten years you told me so often that it was impossible for you to come to enderby and yet you can go to my neighbour she said my dear mildred i went to riverdale because i was wanted at romsey and do you think you were not wanted at romsey before to-day do you think we should not have been proud to have you preach in our church here people would have flocked from far and wide to hear you yes even to enderby church and you might have aided some good work as you are going to do to-morrow how clever of mrs hillersden to know how to tempt you down here you may be sure it is not the first time i have tried mrs greswold said that lady with her fascinating smile your influence would have gone further than mine i dare say had you taken half as much trouble as i have done mr rawlinson the curate of enderby was announced at this moment 
The vicar was a rich man with another parish in his cure, and his own comfortable vicarage and his brother's family mansion being adjacent to the other church, Enderby saw him but seldom, whereby Mr. Rawlinson was a person of much more weight in the parish than the average clerical subaltern. Mildred liked him for his plain sailing Christianity and unfailing kindness to the poor, and she had asked him to tea this afternoon, knowing that he would like to meet Clement Cancellor. Castellani looked curiously unlike those three other men, with their grave countenances and unstudied dress. George Greswold, roughly clad in shooting jacket and knickerbockers. The two priests in well-born black. The Italian made a spot of brightness in that sombre assembly, the sunlight touching his hair and moustache with glints of gold, his brown velvet coat and light grey trousers suggestive of the studio rather than of rustic lanes, a gardenia in his buttonhole, a valuable old intaglio fastening his white silk scarf and withal a half-insolent look of amusement at those two priests and the sombre-visaged master of the house. He slipped with serpentine grace to the further side of the piano, where he contrived his first tete-a-tete -tete with Pamela, comfortably sheltered by the great Henri deux vase of Gloxinias on the instrument. Pamela was shy at first, and would hardly speak. Then, taking courage, told him how she had wondered and wept over Nepenthe, and thereupon they began to talk as if they were two kindred souls that had been kept too long apart by adverse fate, and thrilled with the new delight of union. Round the tea-table the conversation was of a graver cast. After a general discussion of the threatening clouds upon the political and ecclesiastical horizon, the talk had drifted to a question which at this time was uppermost in the minds of men. The deceased wife's sister Bill had been thrown out by the upper house during the last session, and everybody had been talking of that debate in which three princes of the blood royal had been attentive auditors. They had recorded their vote on the side of liberty of conscience, but in vain. Time-honoured prejudices had prevailed against modern enlightenment. Clement Cancellor was a man who would have suffered martyrdom for his faith. He was generous, he was merciful, gentle, self-sacrificing, pure in spirit. But he was not liberal-minded. The old shackles hung heavily upon him. He could not love Wycliffe, and he could not forgive Cranmer. He was an ecclesiastic after the antique pattern. To him the marriage of a priest was a base paltering with the lusts of the flesh, and to him a layman's marriage with a dead wife's sister was unholy and abominable. He had been moved to indignation by the words that had been spoken and the pamphlets that had been written of late upon this question, and now, carried away by George Greswold's denunciation of that prejudiced majority by which the bill had been rejected, Mr. Cancellor gave his indignation full vent, and forgot that he was speaking in a lady's drawing-room and before feminine hearers. He spoke of such marriages as unholy and immoral, he spoke of such households as accursed. Mildred listened to him, and watched him wonderingly, scared at this unfamiliar aspect of his character. To her he had ever been the gentlest of teachers. She saw him now pallid with wrath, she heard him breathing words of fire. George Greswold took up the glove, not because he had ever felt any particular interest in this question, but because he hated narrow-minded opinions and clerical prejudices. "'Why should the sister of his wife be different to a man from all other women?' he asked. "'You may call her different. You may set her apart. You may say she must be to him as his own sister. Her beauty must not touch him. The attractions that fascinate other men must have no influence over him. You may lay this down as a law, civil, canonical, what you will.' but the common law of nature will override your clerical code, will burst your shackles of prejudice and tradition. Shall Rachel be withheld from him who was true and loyal to Leah? She has dwelt in his house as his friend, the favorite and playmate of his children. 
he has respected her as he would have respected any other of his wife's girlfriends but he has seen that she was fair and if god takes the wife and he remembering the sweetness of that old friendship and his children's love turns to her as the one woman who can give him back his lost happiness is he to be told that this one woman can never be his because she was the sister of his first chosen she has come out of the same stock whose loyalty he has proved she would bring to his hearth all the old sweet associations and she would not bring him a second mother-in-law what a stupendous superiority she would have there interjected the jovial rollinson who had been wallowing in hot buttered cakes and strong tea until his usually roseate visage had become startlingly rubicund he was in all things the opposite of the vicar of st elizabeth's he wrote poetry made puns played billiards dined out at all the houses in the neighbourhood that were worth dining at and was only waiting to marry until tom hillersdon should be able to give him a living mr canceller reproved the ribald jester with a scathing look before he took up the argument against his host if this bill were to pass no virtuous woman could live in the house of a married sister he said that is as much as to say that no honest woman can live in the house of any married man retorted greswold hotly do you think if a man is weak enough to fall in love with another woman under his wife's roof he is less likely to sin because your canonical law stares him in the face telling him thou canst never wed her that married man who is inconstant to his wife is not influenced by the chances of the future he is either a bold bad man whose only thought is to win the woman whom he loves at any cost of honour or conscience or he is a weak fool who drifts hopelessly to destruction and in whom the resolution of to-day yields to the temptation of to-morrow neither the bold sinner nor the weak one is influenced by the consideration whether he can or cannot marry the woman he loves under the unlikely circumstance of his wife's untimely death the man who does so calculate is the one man in so many thousands of men who will poison his wife to clear the way for his new fancy i don't think we ought to legislate for poisoners in plain words if a married man is weak enough or wicked enough to be seduced by the charms of any woman who dwells beneath his roof he will not be the less likely to fall because the law of the land has made that woman anathema maranatha or because he has been warned from the pulpit that she is to be to him as his own flesh and blood no dearer and no less dear than the sister beside whom he grew from infancy to manhood and whom he has loved all his life hardly knowing whether she is as beautiful as hebe or as hideous as tisiphone you are a disciple of the new learning mr greswold canceller said bitterly the learning which breaks down all barriers and annihilates the creator of all things the learning which has degraded god from infinite power to infinitesimal and significance and which explains the genius of plato and shakespeare luther and newton as the ultimate outcome of an unconscious primeval mist i am no darwinian replied greswold coldly but i would rather belong to his school of speculative inquiry than to the calvinism which slew servetus or the romanism which lit the death-pile of the oxford martyrs mildred was not more anxious than mrs hillersdon to end a discussion which threatened angry feeling they looked at each other in an agony and then with a sudden inspiration mildred exclaimed if we could only persuade mr castellani to play to us we are growing so terribly serious and then she went to clement canceller who was standing by the open window and took her place beside him while mrs hillersdon talked with pamela and castellani at the piano you know what a privilege it is to me always to hear you talk she murmured in her sweet subdued voice you know how i have followed your teaching in all things and be assured my husband is no materialist 
we both cling to the old faith the old hopes the old promises you must not misjudge him because of a single difference of opinion forgive me my dear mildred replied counsellor touched by her submission i did wrong to be angry i know that to many good christians this question of marriage with a sister-in-law is a stumbling-block i have taken the subject too deeply to heart perhaps i to whom marriage altogether seems outside the christian priest's horizon perhaps i may exaggerate the peril of a wider liberty but i who look upon henry the eighth as the arch-enemy of the one vital church of one he might have been the wise and enlightened reformer i who trace his unhallowed union with his brother's widow all the after-evils of his career must needs lift up my voice against a threatened danger castellani began mendelssohn's wedding march with a triumphant burst that sounded like mockery do what the preacher might to assimilate earth to heaven here there would still be marrying and giving in marriage after the march mildred went over to the piano and asked castellani to sing he smiled assent and played the brief symphony to a ballad of heine set by jensen the exquisite tenor voice the perfect taste of the singer held his audience spellbound they listened in silence and entreated him to sing again and then again till he had sung four of these jewel-like ballads and they felt that it was impertinence to ask for more mildred had stolen round to her own sheltered corner half hidden by a group of tall palms she sat with her hands clasped in her lap her head bent she could not see the singer she only heard the low pathetic voice slightly veiled it touched her like no other voice that she had ever heard since in her girlhood she burst into a passion of sobs at first hearing sims reeves when that divine voice touched some hypersensitive chord in her own organization and moved her almost to hysteria and now in this voice of the man who of all other men she instinctively disliked the same tones touched the same chord and loosened the floodgates of her tears she sat with streaming eyes grateful for the sheltering foliage which screened her from observation she dried her eyes and recovered herself with difficulty when the singer rose from the piano and mrs hillersdon began to take leave mr rawlinson buttonholed castellani on the instant you sing as if you had just come from the seraphic choir he said you must sing for us on the seventh who are us asked castellani our concert in aid of the fund for putting a burne jones window over the altar a concert in enderby village is it to be given at the lock-up or in the pound it is to be given in this room mrs greswold has been good enough to allow us the use of her drawing-room and her piano miss ransom promises to preside at the buffet for tea and coffee it will be glorious fun exclaimed pamela i shall feel like a barmaid i have always envied barmaids Daudet says there is one effulgent spot in every man's life, one supreme moment when he stands on the mountaintop of fortune and of bliss, and from which all the rest of his existence is a gradual descent. I wonder whether that afternoon will be your effulgent spot, Miss Ransom, said Mrs. Hillersdon laughingly. It will, it must, to superintend two great urns of tea and coffee, almost as nice as those delicious beer engines one sees at Salisbury Station to charge people a shilling for a small cup of tea and sixpence for a penny sponge-cake. What splendid fun! "'Will you help us, Mr. Castleton?' asked the curate, who was not good at names. "'Mrs. Greswold has only to command me. I am in all things her slave.' "'Then she will command you. She does command you,' cried the curate. "'If you will be so very kind,' 
began Mildred. I am only too proud to obey you, answered Castellani, with more earnestness than the occasion required, drawing a little nearer to Mildred as he spoke. Only too glad of an excuse to return to this house. Mildred looked at him with a half-frightened expression and then glanced at Pamela. Did he mean mischief of some kind? Was this the beginning of an insidious pursuit of that frank girl, whose fortune was quite enough to tempt the casual adventurer? Of all men I have ever seen, he is the last to whom I would entrust a girl's fate, thought Mildred, determined to be very much on her guard against the blandishments of César Castellani. She took the very worst means to ward off danger. She made the direful mistake of warning the girl against the possible pursuer that very evening when they were sitting alone after dinner. "'He is a man I would never trust,' she said. "'No more could I,' replied Pamela. "'But, oh, how exquisitely he sings!' And excited at the mere memory of that singing, she ran to the piano and began to pick out the melody of Heinz, Ich weiß nicht, was soll es bedeuten, and sang the words softly in her girlish voice, and then slipped away from the piano with a nervous little laugh. "'Upon my word, Aunt Mildred, I am trawish myself at the very thought of that exquisite song.' she said. What a gift it is to sing like that! How I wish I were César Castellani! What, when we have both agreed that he is not a good man? Who cares about being good? exclaimed Pamela, beside herself. Three-fourths of the people of this world are good. But to be able to write a book that can unsettle everyone's religion, to be able to make everybody miserable when one sings, those are gifts that place a man on a level with the Greek gods. If I were Mr. Castellani, I should feel like Mercury or Apollo. Pamela, you frighten me when you rave like that. Remember that, for all we know to the contrary, this man may be a mere adventurer and in every way dangerous. Why should we think him an adventurer? He told me all about himself. He told me that his grandfather was under obligations to your grandfather. He told me about his father, the composer, who wrote operas which are known all over Italy and who died young, like Mozart and Mendelssohn. Genius is hereditary with him. He was suckled upon art. I have no doubt he is bad, irretrievably bad, said Pamela with unction. But don't try to persuade me that he is a vulgar adventurer who would try to borrow five-pound notes, or a fortune hunter who would try to marry one for one's money, concluded the girl, falling back upon her favorite form of speech. End of chapter 13